Well, when I first heard of uh, Louis Zamperini, you know, in the, the bestseller book, Unbroken, uh, in, the, in the blockbuster movie by the same title, uh, I quickly sort of dismissed it, right? I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I don't know why. I think maybe just the way it was marketed. I kind of assumed it was just another uh, cheesy, Christian-made, you know, sentimental, over-the-top kind of story. You know, another marketing attempt uh, to get Christians who, for some reason, right, we just love bad Christian books and movies, don't we? Uh, we're drawn to them like moth to the flame, some of us anyway. So I, I put it in that category and just said, you know what, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. Um, that's what I typically do with those kinds, just in case you're curious. Um, but I kept hearing about it, right, and from lots of different sources. And so I finally looked into the book a little bit uh, and quickly discovered that actually everybody loves this book. Uh, from Oprah to the New York Times to Entertainment Weekly, um, everybody loves this, this book. And so I, I bought it and began reading it. Almost done uh, reading it. Uh, if I had had another week, I would have finished it, I promise. But uh, we're here a little sooner than we thought we'd be. Um, and, uh, and I also love it, um, at least up to the point where I'm at in the story. And let me just tell a little bit about it, in case you're not familiar with it. Uh, it's about this guy, Louis Zamperini. He was a, a runner, an Olympiad, uh, one of the fastest in, in the world back in the, in the 1930s. Uh, he could, his fastest time was a mile and four minutes, eight seconds, which at that time was as fast as it gets, uh, true, truly. And I mean, it's, it's still pretty amazing, right? Four minutes and eight seconds. So he's kind of a, kind of a big deal, Right? And he fought in, in World War II, uh, and his, um, as, a, as a bomber, his, his plane uh, went down into the Pacific, and he survived for 47 days in a life raft the size of a bathtub with almost no supplies. Like, seriously, imagine that, right? The size of a bathtub. At one point, he literally caught a shark with his bare hands and ate it, Okay. This is the kind of, kind of individual that we're talking about. He is a survivor. He is strong, and he made it through all that. Only to be picked up by the Japanese, right? Captured, uh, truly enslaved, beaten, tortured, starved. I mean, at the very lowest points of systematic deprivation. But he made it through that. Two years of that, actually. America won the war, and he was able to come home, got married, and he, you know, lived happily ever after because he's so strong, right? Not true. And actually, what is most amazing about this story is how ironic the title is. At least in the book, the movie, I think, kind of skips over a lot of this. Uh, I haven't seen the movie yet, but that's what I've, I've heard. Uh, it's just not true. In fact, this individual, um, who perhaps is one of the strongest individuals, both emotionally and physically, that I've ever encountered. I mean, reading about him has just been truly amazing. But returning from the hells he'd experienced, Louis was deeply, tragically, and understandably broken. I mean, to the very core. Uh, so much so, I mean, he had constant nightmares, or flashbacks, night terrors, whatever you want to call them. Uh, got so bad that at one point he woke up in the middle of the night strangling his pregnant wife so consumed by it. He quickly turned to, to alcoholism, which was beginning to destroy everything about him. It was the only place where he could get rest or comfort or, or some sense of, of freedom from the terrors that he, he faced. And he began to grow bitter and enraged. In fact, his only satisfying or happy thought was his plans to go back to Japan and, and murder this one guard in particular he calls the bird. 
That was his only, his only hope, right, in his mind. Unbroken is a myth. I mean, no, nobody, nobody is unbreakable. And here, here's the thing. If a man like that can crumble, I mean, this guy is as close to a superhero as they could possibly come. If he can crumble, if he wasn't strong enough, I mean, then what hope is there for me, right? I mean, because in, in my mind, okay, I've, I've showed this before. Sorry to reuse material here, but you've got, okay, this is what I see when I look in the mirror, okay? Uh, it's either Justin Timberlake or the Terminator, right? One, one of the two. Um, because in my mind, I'm strong enough, right? I can do this. I've got it figured out. I've got control of my own life. Yes, thank you for uh, yeah, getting rid of that so quickly. Um, that's, that's how I see myself. That's how most of us probably see ourselves, right? We have what it takes. We can do it. And then I read Louis' story, where I read a passage of Scripture like the one we just heard read, and reality sort of just clobbers me right in the face. I am not as strong as I think I am. And I could crumble in a heartbeat. By my, by my circumstances, something thrown into my life, or probably more likely by my own failures, my own, my own mistakes. And the, the truth is, you can have your life together. Many of us do, right? You can be as strong as Zamparini. I mean, just look at us. We are the richest, most educated, powerful people in the history of the human race, you and me. But we're not as strong as we think we are. And some of you already know this, right? You've, you've figured that out in some way or another. Maybe that's even why you're here, right? Something in your life is... It overwhelms you or crushes you. Maybe it is a circumstance. Maybe it's a bad decision that you made and you feel the weight of it. But regardless, your, your confidence has been stripped. And you're just, honestly, right? You're just here trying to put the pieces back together. Regardless, though, regardless of where you're at on this spectrum, we're not the first people to experience any of this. Now, if, if you've been with us these last few months, I've been working through this, this letter uh, right in the New Testament. It's called 1 Corinthians. And, and we're in the midst of this, this longer section when Paul keeps talking about how um, we should be able to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel, really give up anything for the sake of, of people being able to encounter and know and receive Jesus, that he's worth any cost. And specifically for them, he's been talking about when or when not to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols, which I know seems just completely out of our realm of life and reality, doesn't it? But essentially what Paul has told them up to this point is that, okay, it's, it's okay to buy meat in the grocery store that may or may not have been sacrificed to an idol and to eat it, okay? It's just meat, who really cares? That's what he said early on in the first part. But he's also said, I mean, don't, don't go to the pagan temples, right? Don't go to their, their celebrations and eat the meat there as it's sacrificed to the idols. You don't want to do that. And he's also said that regardless, right, whether, whether you can or can't, uh, those who are strong in the church, or those who are strong and those who are weak, he's talking about, uh, if you're strong, you should be able to give up the things to love those who are weak, if, if that's necessary, right, to love them well. You should be able to give up meat or, or whatever, whatever it is, right, in order to, to love those around you. And then here he's saying, besides, right, strong or weak, you're not as strong as you think you are. Even those there who are strong. And even though you and I, I mean, we're dealing with, you know, different 
different stuff, right? We, we're not meat, you know, whatever. Um, the fundamental problem is the same. But no one is unbreakable. And to help us this morning through these words, we're going to look at three, three lessons in particular that I think Paul is sort of working out, working through uh, to this ancient church that I think also applies, applies for us. Three lessons. Lesson number one. Lesson number one. Blessings are not always a sign of God's favor. It's not always a sign of God's favor. Because for me, at least, I, I, I mean, it's sadly amusing how this tends to work, but uh, at least for me, I like to take credit for the good things in my life. You know, a little, little of this, right? I got it all together and have it figured out. But then when something bad happens, right, I either want to blame God or somebody else, right? It wasn't my fault, right? We, we, try, to, we try to do that. Um, it's, and so essentially, here's what happens, right? For some of us here, and, and you know, myself included, I, I fall into this plenty. Um, if things are going well in your life, let's say generally for, for some of us, that's, that's probably the case. Things are okay, right? You know, maybe you've got a decent job, uh, your health is okay, you still like your kids, and they, you know, still like you most of the time. Uh, you go to church, right? At least you did today, so that's something. Um, maybe you even volunteer and, and give, you know, and so you've, you've got sort of these lists of things. And so overall, yes, things are good. You're happy, or at least, you know, most of the time, which, let's be honest, who can ask for much more than that, right? Even a little bit of happiness. And, and so we, we look at those circumstances, and then we quickly think, I quickly think, well, I've got to be doing something right, Right? I mean, if there is a God and he's letting me experience all of these joys and all of these blessings, all of these good things, then he's got to be okay with how I'm living, right? He's got to be okay with the things that I've got going on in my life. Wrong. Blessings are not always a sign of God's favor. In fact, Paul makes it really clear in the first few verses, you can have everything going right for you and still be the worst, right? Look look how he starts this. Chapter 10 is where we're at. Let me pick up reading in in verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all baptized under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, that's a lot going on there. The word spiritual appears probably a little too many times for us to really be able to follow what Paul is, is getting at, right? We struggle through when we hear those words. Uh, but essentially what Paul is doing there, he's looking all the way back to the time of the Exodus, right? I mean, speaking of bad movies marketed for Christians, right? That would be an example. Uh, but this, this story, right? Uh, the, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, I mean, imagine that. Imagine walking through with water on both sides on dry land. I just can't even imagine it. Paul is calling that a kind of baptism, right? A different kind of baptism, but a baptism in a sense by water, right? As they're walking through, seeing this. And then then they eat food in the desert delivered from heaven somehow. It's called manna, which just means what is this, right? But they're eating it. And they're in a desert, and somehow water keeps, you know, coming out of these different rocks, right? And they're, they're able to be satisfied and have all of their, their needs met. And, and Paul even says, this is like a, a hidden glimpse of Jesus himself, something this miraculous, this much, an evidence of God's rescue and provision, Paul is saying. And even so, they were the worst. 
That's, that's really what he's getting at, right? I mean, he says God was not pleased with them. It's kind of an understatement, isn't it? Because it's like six seconds after all of this happens, and already, right, even as, as the verses continue in, in 6 through 10, Paul kind of lists out some of their problems. I mean, idolatry, certainly, right? They're worshiping all these other, other gods, other things that they think are going to, to give them what they need now in this new land, this new place. He says that they're having sex with whoever, whenever. Uh, they're putting Christ to the test through their unbelief. They don't, they don't really believe what God is doing there. And they're even whining against God himself. I mean, if you read Exodus, you read Numbers, you see it over and over just whining, grumbling. We're so much better than that, aren't we? So Paul says that God killed a lot of them. A whole lot. Which makes us pretty uncomfortable, so we'll have to talk about that in a little bit here. We'll, we'll get there. But essentially what Paul is doing, even in these opening verses, is he, he's comparing them and Israel, right? Those ancient Israelites, he's comparing them to the church in Corinth. It's comparing them to, to us in, in many ways. I mean, that, that's what he's getting at towards the end of, of this section, right? That, that just as they ate spiritual food and spiritual drink, things we can't even hardly imagine, Paul says that we Christians get an even better food and drink, better than meat sacrificed to idols, better than manna, bread from heaven. Paul is saying that we have the body and blood of Jesus, that we, we have communion, the bread and, and the wine, and Paul is saying, if you think those things are good, you think man is great, you think this meat that you used to sacrifice to Apollo and Aphrodite, you think that was good? You have things that were as common in that culture as anything, a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. Paul says that's better. Paul says that the Corinthians have more going for them. He's saying that you and I, we have seen more of God's provision, more of his rescue, more of his blessing, even than they did. And yet for the church in Corinth, they're dealing with the same sins, the same messes, the same issues. And frankly, 2,000 years later, we are as well. They have God's blessings, all of them. It doesn't mean they're on the right path. We do that, don't we? We look at our strengths, we look at our, our blessings, you know, the things that we've got, and we, we just quickly make assumptions about them. Well, it must be okay. And so maybe you look at your business, right, or your work, and you, well, I'm successful, I've got, I've got money. It doesn't mean that you're doing things right doesn't mean that you're running your business like you should or you're working like you should. Or maybe you look at your kids, right? And I mean, they're compliant. They get good grades. It doesn't, it doesn't make you a good mom or dad. Or even, you know, I go to church, take communion. It doesn't make you a Christian. What are you resting in, really, at the end of the day? Are we resting in God or in the blessings that God gives us? In his strength or, or my strength? I mean, it's a subtle difference, isn't it? Because we thank God for his blessings. We, we rejoice over them when he gives them to us. And yet one is idolatry if we rest in it. Like eating meat in a pagan temple. And the other is worship to the true and living God. With one there is life, with the other is death. Being broken or serving the unbreakable God. And here's, here's the test, right? If you want to know if you're resting in something... Um, ask yourself, what, what in your life couldn't you live without? 
right? Like what, what in your life, if it was taken from you, would break you? Maybe an easier way to say it is, what would you trade Jesus for? Be honest, come on. Whatever it is, that's your rest. That's your worship. That's, that's your God. And many of us, if we're, if we're honest, many of us would gladly trade God for his blessings any day. Wouldn't we? And, and here's why that's a problem. Why we're, we're not as strong as we think we are. And, and this is true whether you're a Christian or not, young, old, no matter who you are. Lesson, lesson number two here. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. I mean, every one of us are worshipers. Again, it doesn't matter who you are, what you believe, right? We, worship is sort of written in our code-like DNA. We, we give our acclaim, our applause, our love and affections to something, right? You see it when you uh, go to a sporting event, right? Right, don't you? I mean, we are, we're worshipers, right? Or, or the One Direction concert, if anybody, right? That's a, or, or sex or food or art or any of these things, right? We were made to be worshipers and we do it all the time. Every one of us worships something or someone and probably both. So what? I mean, why did God kill all of those Israelites? Right? It's because we become what we worship, either to our ruin and utter destruction or to our restoration and ultimate joy. And Paul, Paul describes their idolatry more in 6 through 10. I alluded there. Um, you can see what he talks about, how, how it works itself out for them. It's easy to hear that and think, you know what, I don't, I don't worship idols. This whole golden calf thing just seems so ridiculous, doesn't it? And we feel like, once again, we're back with the meat sacrificed to idols. We're so out of that context, we don't even begin to identify with it. And we think, what on earth would cause these people? They just walked through the Red Sea, right? They'd seen God like this. How now are they making a calf out of gold and worshiping it? But you've got to think about it for a second. Imagine what it would have been like for them, because they, they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt, making bricks. So what did they know how to do? Make bricks, right? That, that was it. And now all of a sudden they're on their own and they know, they know they're going to get hungry, but they know nothing about farming. They haven't done it. Their grandparents didn't do it. Their great-grandparents. Here they are all of a sudden and they're hungry. And let, let's say maybe the, the first year of crops didn't go so great, right? So they're even hungrier. And they look at their new neighbors, the Canaanites, Right? who are farmers. They've been farming for a long time and, and they see they, they've, got, they've got tons of food. They've got food they can spare. And so they go to them and just ask their neighbors, how do you, how do, you do this? Well, you've, you've got to plant this time of year and you've got to plant in conditions like this. You need to fertilize like this and, and you've got to pull the weeds here and all these kinds of things. Really, really good advice. Oh, and by the way, you really need to sacrifice to Baal. Wait, who? Baal? Who's that? What do you mean? You don't know who Baal is? Baal is the God who makes it rain, right? He's the one who brings fertility and life out of the earth. If you want to eat, you've got to sacrifice to him. They know better. God said he's the only one for them to worship, and yet they're hungry. They've got mouths to feed. They've never farmed before, and so, of course, they start sacrificing to Baal. 
I'm so glad we're so different from them. (laughs) Because here's what happens. You get a new job, right? We've all been there, right? Or you will soon enough. Get a new job. Maybe things aren't going quite as, as, as good as you thought they would. You're not moving up like you, you thought. You're not advancing. You don't have the, the income yet to match your lifestyle, and you're feeling some of that, that pressure, right? You, you, it's painful. And so you ask your neighbor. You just say, what am I doing wrong? And he gives you some really good advice. You know, you, you should try this app, read this book, utilize this technique, all really, really good stuff. Oh, you know what? By the way, you're not, you're not going to make it unless you start working every day. You really can't take a day off. Yes, I know, kids and all that, but you know what? You'll have time for them later. And besides, it's for them, right? The money's for them. And you know what? You know what else? You're just maybe, I think you're maybe just a little bit too nice. You'd probably be a little bit more ruthless with your colleagues, maybe a little bit less honest with your customer. And then, then you'll have crops. And it doesn't take that long before we're sacrificing to Baal as well. We're not that different, are we? And you become, you become what you worship. If you worship success, you will become the kind of person who will do anything for success. I mean, if that's what you want, if that's what you build your life on, you may or may not get it, but you will do everything you can and you will be that person. If you worship money, then, then greed will consume you. Worship sex, it'll never be enough. You'll never be satisfied. Even if you worship family, right, and kids. And I mean, that's what we do. We live in the suburbs. We love our kids. We worship them so easily. But you're so likely to become, you know, overbearing, right? Or just, you know, that parent, right? Or just utterly disappointed in the whole process. We become what we worship. And so when Paul asks in verse 22, this is towards the end of our section, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The answer, of course, is no. God is jealous, rightfully jealous, because he made us for himself. We belong to him, and no one and nothing else can demand anything from us. He is our owner, our master, right? He is our God, and he knows best what will satisfy us. He knows, he knows what we need, and so it's not even just jealous because he wants us for himself. It's, he's jealous because he's a loving and good father, and he sees us destroying ourselves, me destroying myself over and over again. He knows that the more you give to an idol, the less you get. You know that too, don't you? We've been there. The more you give, the less you get. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, that third trip through the buffet, right? You don't even want to go up there anymore, right? It's, you're, you're stuffed to the brim, and yet you're, you're hoping, right? I mean, this is why we do it, just for a little more satisfaction. Just a little bit more even though every bite makes us sicker and sicker. We do it with food. We do it with everything. We become what we worship. and We were made to be like God. Anything, anything less than becoming like him is a denial of our humanity. We're made to be like him, and it leads to death when we reject him. And so, yeah, God, he judges the Israelites. It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? God killing all of those people. We don't, we don't have time to explain all that. I, I still struggle to get my mind around all that and God's judgment. It's hard for us to swallow. And yet at the end of the day, God gives us what we want. Doesn't he? I mean, he's that, he's that gracious, even when it hurts. I mean, if you think about it, if, if we believe, truly believe that God is the only source of life, the only 
source of life. If we reject him and worship other things, then we're choosing death. We're choosing that which is not life. And whether that death happens now through direct intervention as it did with the Israelites or a handful of years later by more natural causes, the end result is the same, isn't it? God will judge you. Me. And if you have spent your life telling him that you want nothing to do with him, probably don't actually say that to God, right? But if we've spent our life living in such a way that makes it very clear that we want nothing to do with him, then in the end, he will give us what we want and we will have nothing to do with him forever. C.S. Lewis, listen, listen how he summarizes this. He's so good with word pictures and metaphors. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will get you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? And once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? You become what you worship, to your glory or to your shame. And we're always worshiping. Every one of us. You can't turn it off. We're always worshiping something or someone. We're always giving our life and our our affections and our, our motivations and our efforts to something. Which means we're always becoming I used to think that, right, if you just do nothing, you're not becoming anything, right? So you could sort of have this, like, past, right? You could just kind of float along and say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to become that person. But the reality, we're always becoming something. We're always moving. It's part of human nature. We don't, we don't stay the same. You're always becoming someone. So who am I becoming? Verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example they were written down for our instruction. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands, anyone who thinks he's strong, take heed lest he fall. Not as strong as we think we are. I mean, you may think you're unbreakable, but those things that you give your life to, they're going to keep demanding from you. I mean, they're they're a slave driver in your life. They're not going to let up. You're going to keep giving to them as long as you keep going to them. They're going to keep taking. And so it's so easy to say, come on, I'm never going to become, you know, that overbearing, obnoxious, that stereotypical mom or mother-in-law. It's not not me. I'm not going to do that. Or we say, "I, I would never trade giving my kids stuff rather than myself. Never do that. Or you think, my selfishness, yeah, okay, I've got some issues. My selfishness, it's never going to alienate the people in my life who are closest to me. It's never going to get that bad. But you're always becoming somebody, something. And you can only become what you worship. You can only become that which you love. And I've got to tell you, I am an expert in worshiping anything rather than Jesus. It's just so easy to do, isn't it? So is it hopeless? 
I hope not. Lesson number three. Lesson number three, Paul says there's always a way out. We're not as strong as we think we are, but God, he's way stronger than we can even imagine. And and so Paul, moving right along in this text, verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Therefore, my beloved, and I love that he calls him that. I mean, especially if you've been with us this whole time, he said some harsh, challenging words to the church at Corinth, but I love that. My beloved, my, my dear, dear friends, flee from idolatry. We all know temptation, don't we? I mean, we know it like we know an old friend. We know it's proclivities, it's, it's oddities, it's the ways in which and the places in which it creeps. I mean, we, whether young, old, right, Christian or not, we know what it feels like to want something or want to do something that we know we shouldn't, right? And we know the, the pain of resisting, right? I mean, have you ever had a temptation so great that you thought the whole world was going to crumble if you didn't give in? It just overwhelms us and we beg, beg for relief. And if you, if you haven't felt that, it's probably because you're just giving in all the time. It feels so lonely, doesn't it? Temptation is a lonely place. And it's so easy to think in those moments, you know, I know it's wrong, but my situation is unique, right? I mean, this, this, this part of my life, you know, if you only knew my wife or my depression or my, my loneliness, if you only knew this or that about me, then, then you'd understand, right? My, we love thinking that we're so unique, don't we? I felt that way. I've used that excuse. Don't be mad at me. Be mad at Paul. He says you're wrong. You're flat. You're not that unique. Your story, your situation. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not making light of it. I hope. I hope you don't hear that. And yet, there is not a temptation, Paul says, other than the ones who are common other than the ones that all of us deal with. Yes, these details may, may change or, or look a little bit different, and yet it's always the same. I mean, Paul says always it's a temptation to idolatry, to worship something other than the true God. Every temptation, big, small, doesn't matter what it is, all of it says to God, I know better than you what I need, and I love what I need more than you. And so every temptation at the end of the day is the same, and yet God is faithful, he says. He's stronger. And he will never let you be tempted beyond your ability. I think it's interesting. means, I mean, if you kind of read there in between the lines, it sort of it means pretty clearly that Paul is saying that no temptation comes into your life apart from God's knowledge. Right? Nothing surprising. He's not toying with you, and yet he's saying that God, God lets it in. He lets it happen. But he knows you can beat it. Not because you're stronger than that or better than that, but because he's stronger and he's better. Paul says there's nothing you'll face you can't endure. No temptation. He always, he always provides a way of escape. He doesn't say it'll be easy. He doesn't say it'll come natural. He doesn't say you'll want to take that way, right? In fact, good chance you probably won't. But there'll always be a way out. And so, yeah, for example, I mean, we're all, we're all different. We're all the same, but we're all different, aren't we? 
And so maybe it is success, right? And everything for you is success and you, you've got to achieve. And so maybe your way out is of, of workaholism and making that an idol in your life. Maybe it's not receiving the acclaim that you always wanted. Maybe it's saying no to those dreams of success, of prosperity. Maybe it's saying no. Maybe, maybe for, for others, it's, it's a relationship that it's, it's got to change or it's got to end. It's, it's going to destroy you or the people around you if it doesn't. Or, or maybe it's lust and the way out Maybe you don't need to carry a smartphone. I know we all have them, right? It seems like a right, not a privilege. If that's too much of a temptation, we get rid of it. Maybe that's the way out. We don't, we don't need all that stuff, right? I don't know what you're fighting, but I do know there's a way out. Now, I need to say here as well that this is a promise that Paul says is available for Christians, for those, for those who follow Jesus. Um, not because, not because Christians are, are stronger, right? In fact, quite the contrary, the only way to become a Christian is to begin by acknowledging how weak and desperate you really are, right? You can't begin anywhere else, right? You don't begin by saying, well, I've got to figure it out and I, I know all the answers and my life is okay. No, that's, that's, that's not where we start. We start with saying, I am desperate. I cannot do this. But once you're his, he sets you free. He empowers you through his spirit. He, he begins to reorder your loves. Temptation doesn't, it doesn't go away. <laughs> I wish. But it's not your master anymore. Just as God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God has freed us from our slavery to sin. And all very well and good, right? Except that we're terrible at this. Oh, yeah, there's a way out, but I'm really good at finding the way in, right? I mean, isn't that, we, just, we know how to get there. We know what to do. And we, so often we end up choosing what we want instead. But Paul tells us, right, in verse 14, he says it so clearly, run, flee idolatry. But you can't just run away, can you? You've got to run to something else. You can't just quit worshiping those other things. You've got to worship something else. You need something else to give your life to, right? Because you're going to give it to something, right? You're going to give your heart, your life, your, your energies, your affections. You're going to give it somewhere. So where are you running? Where are you fleeing? Because what I do, typically, right, these moments of temptation, the things that I'm trying to overcome in my life, I just usually just run from one idol to another, right? Because for some reason, that other idol, I, you know, I got caught or I, I feel ashamed or, you know, it makes me feel sort of guilty or whatever. Often, I mean, let's be honest, it's very little to do with God sometimes, our, our, our feelings of guilt. Um, and so I'll say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I just kind of snuggle up with something else for a while. And so maybe, maybe for you, it's like lust, right? But then you run to food, right? And make food a place where you feel pleasure and joy once again. Or, or, or maybe, you know, maybe it's like, I am not going to be a workaholic. I'm not going to be that guy. And so you end up worshiping your kids or you worship the weekend, right? And everything is there. We, we are going to run to something and you, you cannot run to nothing. Only, only Forrest Gump can do that, right? Uh, that's not who we are. We run somewhere. It's got to be for us. If we're going to do this, if we're going to flee those idols, we've got to run to Jesus, that's why Paul ends this section talking about the Lord's Supper. Instead of meat sacrificed to idols, instead of all those other lesser gods that I run to, we get to participate, Paul says, in the body and blood of Jesus. And for him to topple the idols in your life and mine, we've got to believe that he's worth it. That he's actually better, both, both now and forever.
That's what Louis Zamperini learned. He said, man, that guy was broken. Um, understandably, just completely shattered, consumed by rage, depression, alcoholism. Uh, so much so that even he, I mean, hated God, right? He forbid his wife from going to church, wanted nothing to do with it. It would just drive him to rage. Until he heard a, heard a guy named Billy Graham um, talking about this man named Jesus. We're talking, this is in the 40s, right? So he, he knew the plot, right? He'd heard of Jesus before and, and all of that. It was no, no surprise, and yet... When he heard him talking about Jesus, he actually grew even angrier. Uh, uh, the author writes, Louis pushed past. I just read this chapter last night, actually, as I was crawling into bed. It's just so perfect. He's, the author writes, Louis pushed past the congregants in his row, charging to the exit. His mind was tumbling. He felt enraged, violent, on the edge of explosion. He wanted to hit someone. And it goes on. As he was running, he had another flashback. But this, this time it was a good one. It was, he saw sort of this, this image of all the ways in which God had protected him and preserved his life over those terrible, terrible, unthinkable, unimaginable events. And he felt supremely alive, it says. It was the last flashback he would ever have. And he gave himself to the one who was stronger. In the morning, it says he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, his captors hadn't come into his dreams. And he would never have those dreams again. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he lived like another 50 years, 55 years maybe. It says Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the captors had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning he was a new creation, and softly he wept. Not because he was strong or unbroken, because he had found someone who was stronger. We're not unbreakable, you and me. Not even close. Temptations surround us. Idols consume us and overcome us. And yet Jesus was broken for our sake. I mean, there's the great irony, right? The God of the universe, the one who truly is unbroken and unbreakable, comes, right, and enters into this reality and into this, this, this body, right, and was beaten beyond recognition, shattered, crushed for our iniquities, and crucified so that he could remake us, you and me, begin putting those broken pieces back together, and yes, you and I, we're broken, we're breakable, and we're going to continue to break down, you and me, and, and eventually, it's going to end with us coming to pieces in the grave that we we're going to expire. Our lives are going to be over. It's going to be done, and we will, we will be consumed to the lowest level of brokenness. And yet if he is the one that we flee to, our God allowed himself to be broken so that we too could be raised from the dead, never to break again, and we will enjoy life unbroken with our Savior, not because we're strong enough, we're certainly not as strong as we think we are. But he is strong enough for all of us.